Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. So, um, the order of events is going to be, um, Eric's going to read, we'll take a brief break, come back, and Nina will read, and then I guess we'll go and do something else. Um, Stack chairs, I don't know. Um, That's a suggestion, not a necessity. So, okay, so I'm not going to quote, at least initially, from Eric Amling's collection, from the author's private collection, because I want to think about a brief moment in the life of Elvis Presley first. At his last performance, at his public performance in 1977, Elvis performed one of my, at least, uh, favorite moves. Um, or rather, at least my favorite moves. Um, bathed in sweat, a stagehand drapes a towel around his neck, right, as he's, as he's singing. Um, Elvis removes the towel and hands it to a member of the crowd, now soaked in his sweat. Um, the crowd, he notes, is a pretty good audience, but the uh, you know, somewhat curt slight of his fans doesn't really matter. The assistant continues to rap. Is Fet the correct term, the towel like a prayer shawl around him, a sort of shroud of Turin of American pop iconography? Also, we should note that Elvis died with a copy of a book about the Shroud of Turin at his bedside, just to just let you know that. Um, so during the same concert, uh, and indeed for years before this, Elvis wore a chai necklace, right, the Hebrew word for life, as in lechaim, to life, um, a pendant uh, against his bare chest, right, peeking through beneath his bejeweled jumpsuit. Um, so, all right. So I have no false preconceptions about Eric Amling's work. It really doesn't have to do with Elvis directly, and I won't attempt to make that leap. I just wanted to share that <laughs> for those findings with you. Um, rather, it has a sort of semi-anonymous horror of the first person, which is, uh, at least in my um, when I was writing this, I found it lovely. I'm sure I will again. Um, so let's take a peek behind the curtain, shall we? So this is a quote. This afternoon will be spent squeezing a little lemon juice onto an erotic stain on these cotton pants, looking with a pleasure at a high-heeled shoe covered in dog hair. I can do this because my money is automatically exchanged for me, Amling writes in white noise. But this horror, which is total in its design, really isn't captured by my quotation, because it is, after all, a gestalt of abysmal affect, a modality of pathos that relies primarily on our ability, say, to take upon ourselves the remembrance of the, I think this, uh, coming up as a quote, of the eye whereby, I think this is a quote, yeah? My interests are a combination of mood, mood light, yeah, it definitely is. My interests are a combination of mood lighting and exotic materials where the body is a hothouse, a semi-soft, well-slept face. This is not a quote. So I'm glad for that reminder um, of that abysmal affect um, and especially, uh, especially so as I inhale deeply the acrid uh, sweat of Elvis. So please welcome Eric Amling to the Poetry Project. Uh, yeah, and thank you, Poetry Project, for having me um, and for shelling out a few clams to hear someone read monotone voice for 20 minutes. Um, but I popped some Zoloft, so I'm pumped. Um, I'm going to jump right in. Uh, you, you've, you had a little bit of a preview, so I apologize if... You already know some punchlines that are coming up. I won't, I won't read that poem first. Cool new fear. Mishandling of a delicate situation is somewhat of a turn on. I read about daily life bereft of reference points but surviving in practice. Like it's supposed to be some interesting post-mortem box set. The truth is I come home every night and botch the ideal solitary mystique with an escalator for a nervous system perpetually tumbling a canvas sack of benzodiapines. I am not interested in your writing about the Chateau Marmont. I am interested in the pigeons pecking at the puke of the party girl. I'm trying to keep this accessible for translation into major foreign languages like an animal's quest to solve an insignificant problem. It's the only way I'll phoenix. I'm forced to love life or suffer the pleasure of not caring. 
staring at a marble pyramid on an onyx coffee table, unmarred by so much work of delusion. I'm looking for a streamlined, artistically styled piece. Placing yourself in a poem is martyrdom. It comes from an anxiety that death feels like eternal blue balls. I apologize if I evoke a cool new fear, searching for a single visible object to embody public virtue, like chakras dipped in chocolate, like songbirds on the chiseled forearm of a mute. On what I believe is the gilded rubric, lest the lousy stone on a mesa vandalize the temple of a non-believer, though murder is passe. Someone has had to die in order to know what to eat or how to sail. I wanted to be your trinity maker, but it's the promises that are keeping me delinquent. And you've already failed me. There are artists and stuff everywhere, famous in the transparent malaise, and I fear I simply cannot hold this pose a second longer. next poem, White Noise, which you've you know, heard a 30-second clip of. Um, it's true about the, the lemon juice on the pants. FYI. White Noise. This afternoon will be spent squeezing a little lemon juice onto an erotic stain on these cotton pants, looking with pleasure at a high-heeled shoe covered in dog hair. I can do this because my money is automatically exchanged for me my secrets in plastic, secrets that can be most revealing, like creating a website devoted to every object in your room, every tetra in the fishbowl, every capsule of weight gainer. Then, when there's nothing left to archive but the sound, you can record the sound of the room, and it sounds like a biologist had lifted a cage and mice began running through a field, urinating onto some dry leaves. It is the softest sound a human ear can hear, which makes you want to take up arms against the music of the world. Because when I listen to the music of the world, I put on my blue blockers and become a time machine. Because we are the new ancestors of time. When I travel back to the origins of a song, I want to charm it for its secrets, for the pretty peasant girls who walk in rich attire, for the gossips in the spas of wherever, for the ecstasy of crossbreeding at a government border. And it must be dusk because the romance of it is overwhelming, and the mistress is overwhelming, and the weight of age comes with the nobility like good people toiling in a factory until dusk, with nothing else to know but the sound of labor and of machines and of a future you and of your secrets you exchange for another's secrets. And the songs I adore are about them about adultery, about a kindness in the pain, and how the drinks reset the day that is no longer in a field but a room with me, my drinks, my obvious themes I address, that repeat through chains of command like this anthill I know of in a field where I get down on my knees and scream as hard as humanly possible just for them to pick up on my possessed vibrations so they become something like me, some sympathizer. I guess some time with Kayla. Some lines that needed to be cut from this book. 99% of what follows is true. Like mountain water in the form of negotiating streams. I sit on this veranda witnessing a threesome with time and space and a blimp. Just me and this taciturn bust of Helen Keller balled out underneath the sugar moon. Some lines on dysphoria cut from this book. In 2010, a subliminal mortal prenup took hold of me. I felt my terms of use had expired. In 2012, there was a breach of etiquette, a misnomer that took me far into the evening 
like a polygraph of a satellite, depicting a protracted landscape, contagious and crime wave fantastic, making you wish for a palindrome life with a decent breeze. Some lines on aesthetics cut from this book. The quiet spectacle of infrared deer, the x-ray of a complicated handshake, sun-fried eggs on a flotilla of nightshades, asking me to justify the mood I'm in, the density of my finance identity advancing hysteria, this page weighed down by US mint and human hair. I killed something that's going to need reassembling, something beautiful with an underarm tender to the pole. Some lines on work ethic cut from this book. Poetry, like cat urine, can ruin the integrity of a room. It can also be a stealthy dominatrix, from the jet black pussy of a panther, an exact replica. Don't tell the others I'm here, please. It's mostly an illicit dream, sourced from iridescent catacombs. We both should not outlive our acceptance from those closest to us. Keep churning that sphinx on the spit and let it not spoil. Oh, I was having, having a hard time deciding what I was going to read. So, it's not your problem. It's, I'm going to read the middle section because it really shows my range as a writer. <laughs> this is from Rare and Special Interests. It's hard to explain my ghost writing when I remained an insular entity. I came out of the dust looking like this, so I don't know what's your story. I have some Jägermeister, simple socialite in a den of terracotta. If I sample all night your powders and supply low-grade bios to the bi-curious, I'd fail to be the true adulterer I am. A lot of people say time will no longer tell, but public opinion is weird. True vice is understood without speaking. These daily reflections from cirrhosis of the humors to the dominoes of death, to finger the asshole of the muse is to risk discovering what it eats. You're appealing to me reading this unpopular form of art the work late moms and the sort of gently Caribbean dads reaching through their binoculars at the barnacles of zirconia and the nose cartilage of those that take up the warm waters where we find ourselves this afternoon as blameless holy creatures. This is a shout out to allergies. What will happen with an evil light like this? It'll come shining through on some slight clearances, like promotional videos on natural healing, with sorority epitaphs on heavy cotton, the palace purple gelatin capsules of antihistamine. Baby, I'm telling you, they dissolve, they wander, they get frisky, and I let them, whilst lying beside the stone becoming a dopamine Christ as a dozen sycamores police my anxiety with fragrant breath, I'm now a tolerant son of a bitch. I don't like the way the tree moves, but it moves. Sorry, I had to check something really quick. Because I refused to read this poem three times, and then the person that would attend the reading was like, you never read that fucking poem for me. Now they're not here, so I'm going to read it. <laughs> Sorry. I meant that as a jokey way. Um, in my kiosk of self-love, I dream of a great reader's body to compromise in a cashmere of moods, a brilliant light that vomits off the green and dies in the shadows. My jelly bean, my bonbon, are you happy enough to love everything you love Everyone you love with all your soft drinks staining the robotics of your vehicle towards a blanket area and sea reading. A 
applying superb ointments over blue vein pale skin, the soft Russian art of your legs, untroubled swans. This is the last of those uh, poems really showing my range. I know we talk about these possessions, these slender, affectionate souls, about standing cross-armed at the museums, the darker pleasures. You must take me as genuine. It's truly the crematorium, the box of fire, the annihilating finality I speak to and motivated by. This persona crumbles, my integrity pussyfoots. At times I sleep in beds with rich partners. We are in a dark room wanting the same things. I'm not gonna turn this around and say I'm rich, rich with poems, because that is an early death. Like most of you, I don't wanna die just yet, but I blow my brains out every day. That's what gets me out of bed, searching for the reasons to. Infinity pool. When I look outside to the street, outside of my window with my sandwich in hand, a cold sandwich, the triple washed accoutrements, the colors of third world currency, I wish to not subscribe to another magazine with politicians seated next to mugs of pens or ones that fetishize proteins, glaze, and accessorized. When I'm on the elliptical, I think about my blood test results and that I may be in love with a junkie eating her sandwich in the video at the museum. I love going to museums and seeing the women in the thermohydrograph machines. I love going to the museum and going out for fried chicken afterward. When you're alone in a museum, you have no one hurting the accuracy of your recollections. Like how my parents had obviously rented their upstairs apartment to an online prostitute or Brian taking those weekend trips to the state park to masturbate in the shadow of a boulder, disturbed only once by a hang glider walking out from behind some vegetation to the edge of the cliff. Or when a friend was hitchhiking to Sag Harbor and got picked up by Billy Joel but didn't know it was Billy Joel until they had already been in town. That summer I realized I'd been shopping at the 7-Eleven where the artist Ray Johnson parked his Volkswagen before he drowned himself in the cove below the bridge. Some think being an artist is a poor business model. Still, I don't mind being a business model. There was a fine listener-supported rock station just north of the city. I wasn't planning on talking about it, but September girls would be very favorable to hear when looking out over the Hudson because you are a vacationer letting the paint dry on a still life of sports equipment. And you're in an infinity pool, and you're thinking of inventing a new perfume. And the hills look like a burn victim, the barges breaking the current with surplus, the reflection of a hummingbird through your jalapeno vodka, unequivocal creation with no perimeters. For dessert, a little box of chocolate bunnies the sound of a mouth opening in an empty room, applying the pressure needed to bring its form to an end. Liquid assets. The civic purposes of the museum were not to be a mere cabinet of curiosities, but served to kill time for the idle but instead tend directly to humanize, to educate and refine a practical and laborious people. Pork into porcelain. This is 1880 at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The museum developed a snobbish reputation. It was argued the museum could aid in the struggle against gigantic vices and to elevate the retrograde. These particulars are in effect an acid wash over the vulgar, vulgar excuse me, breath of expertise. 
I know many people living lives of artistic practice that cannot take care of themselves, and not at a paraplegic circumstance. Art does not refine them. They are porcelain. Success today is the progressive realization of an ideal within a bubble. I want to go to the biennial anyway. We exist in postures. We don't need an intensive course in anatomy to lay our hands on another human being. Touch your partner while you read this. All of us sufficient actors with zero nostalgia. And this is the mirror we're looking for, a gnarled buddy system to analyze our sentient world, poised, chill, and alone. But oh, that ass, honey. Limitations, it seems, give people who accomplish nothing satisfaction. David Copperfield covered a $60,000 Ferrari with a large cloth. With his gestures, he slowly ascended it towards the rafters. This took place against a sequin backdrop of skyscraper silhouettes. After disproving the possibility of attachments, with a sharp pull, the cloth came away. To the disappointment of some, the Ferrari had vanished. At the museum, I look at people with the eyes of an artist in the street with my own. This is Edward Levy. Also, contradicting myself brings two kinds of pleasure, betraying myself and having a new opinion. Every new generation achieves its character through acting out the fantasies of the previous one. Modern youths are still lonely, but love, they have found it in their own reflections. We are clearly on this plateau. Think about the quality of a free opera, a psychic event waving our hands around polygon temples, easing on an everlasting ammunition. There is no use for prayer if you alone exist. Narcissism is like a cliff shrub, easily giving way to gentle pressure. Like a director looked into our dreams, doing nothing but doing it well. The same monetary note used for both deplorable and terrible acts is transubstantiated through moral intervention. A, fuck. B, fuck yes. Money has no conscience. It's a frothy matter that stokes young criminal emotions. Hold the cheap pearl tightly in your hand and visualize money throwing, flowing into your life. Now throw the pearl into an ocean or stream. If you cannot find an ocean or stream, simply throw it into a mound of trash. The act of sympathetic magic will still manifest your desired condition. I got burned up by vanity and folly. This is Eve Babbitt. Cigar ash ignited her skirt whilst driving home from a Hollywood party. She claimed to have suffered from squalid overboogie. These, these physical, this physical fact reduces to psychological effect. She remains secluded in her alien world, the rest existing for us. Abject class, a cocktail of all the remnant liquors in the home. The drink being consistently different, the taste being more of a lifestyle. And one is not being charged with the same crime twice. Ask Americans to crack a window for the fashion burger. Fog machines help present you with your new kidney. The reality of chemistry is that the fame of urine as fluid is only next to the fame of blood. Water remaining in dead fountains is also symbiotic. Nature never giving up. Try and imagine another place. Yes, you will still get your ocean. We're not unable to accommodate that. How the sunlight lands just so on the taint. You make the songs follow wherever you go. Beginners, please, we don't need a good line anymore. This is the contemporary art we've been meaning to get into. Fluid as hell. That was my awful attempt at ever trying to write an essay. Oh, fuck. I'm really bad at it. Uh, <laughs>
Um, uh, but this is my last poem, Notions of Paradise. Uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you, Jen. Um, and thank you for you know, being here. Notions of Paradise. If I was to be a conceptual star, I needed space. My bank teller, my service provider, my general practitioner, they're all aware of my limitations. At night, dream rubble entombs me with utterances of incandescent wisdom from behind a detective's glass door. It'd be safer to leave the celebrity of briefly handling the biographies of show dogs and beige fantasies thousands of years before my creations found a medium. Around the home, you'll find battery-powered fragrances, hot appliances, soft rubber aerobic pads, and various glows. I watch the Anastas cyclones in her tap water, hearing about the dinner in detail. Our friend had oversaturated the market with his pregnant lizard paintings. My mind drifted into the loafers of a substitute teacher as caves of second-rate attraction, frequenting the same container of love, hoping to find the contents drastically changed. What made the drinking so good was the erasure. On cold nights with the bar windows, body humid and dripping, it is a mistake for you to think you're the only one, the only one that could drive with panache through abbreviated beauty. Diplomas, 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 the wind and the nearby hospital trees, a spirit rising from black sweatpants, like Freud's death train wheezing in the sparse heather. With poems equal in weight to an urn of third mind paradise, poems equal in weight to an urn of tornado grass, poems equal in weight to an urn of debutante hands, I will write poems equal in weight to an urn of eastern law firms, often leaving them in the welcome binders of hotels. Then we go see the nudes, then we go see the bruised cash, then we go see the fraught lasers, the Chinatown sunlight, the catamarans, the beer memorabilia, the country exquisites, the devices that soothe. And I'd wave to the brunch people, and I'd read about Bolivia's lithium, and I'd glance at the antiquities of public waste management and collegiate texts. I think of you lacquered in a Pompeii of dance light, surrounded by squadrons of beauty. This was weeks after our dog walker's suicide. In the morning, touching your phone in bed, our toothbrushes in essential but largely sexless bliss to hear the primordial drop on a pregnancy test. Massive negotiating silence. Space, this space, a collection of space that I curate where I forgive myself. Thank you. So, I want to talk about one poem from Nina Polari's collection, Dead Horse, not because it exemplifies the book's strategies, which are numerous, nor because it is even the best example of the price elision of the body's participation in its surroundings, as happens often in this book, nor, at least not solely, because it participates in the agonistic writing that marks poems like I Owe Money with their circuitous alchemy that is the participation of the world and its objects in their impossible pataphysical knowledge building. Rather, I want to talk about the specific poem, No Emergency, because of the way that it points to the compartmentalization of the body, its segmentation into letters and language, and the way that these letters, in their disappearance and recombinant potential uh, recombinant potential preserve themselves in wakefulness. Or, rather, since I've now already covered what I want to talk about, I want to look at the way the body doubles and redoubles itself here, where Polari writes, I quote, I used up all my body getting to the airport, 
Who hasn't, right? Um, I have this entire row of seats to myself, but I'm claiming one. And in it, my body sits tight and small like one good line. But of course, there is no one good line, or at least no singularity of line. That seems to be my understanding of Polari's poetics. And so this, this, this sorry, not displacement, but placement of the body or its concision seems to be the intelligence of space. The poem goes on, quote, a plane is amazing with all its adjustable knobs to give us the feeling of control and all its really dangerous, dangerous parts left unmoved. That precariousness, that illusion of control that is the bodily manifestation of solidity, or as Polari writes, my body is a closet, my body is smaller than a closet, my body is folded into an airplane's overhead bin, my body is so close to dying. It's this uh, solidity or concision that is um, this, this battery, this analogous substance of composition as the computer is, as the mind is, before being perhaps snuffed out entirely. Well, quote, the keyboard light goes out, the reflection in the window stops moving, and this stops the battery from draining entirely. So maybe it's also this asymptotic pause, this belief, I think, in the unverifiable language of identification of selfhood that gives a sort of standard candle to the terrifying, at least to me terrifying, substance of mind whereby we may gauge the speed of its escape and note its objects reflected in the double-paned glass beside it. So please welcome Nina Polari to the Poetry Project. Thank you so much, Judah, um, for having me. And it's always a pleasure to read with Eric, who is, who is fantastic. And uh, I always think of a lot of your lines. I won't go into which ones, but... I always think of a lot of them. <laughs> um, I was going to read the title poem first, but I'm going to read No Emergency because you pulled from it, because now I feel you need context. No Emergency. A reflection of the letters of my computer's backlit keyboard glitters in the airplane's double-pane window. The reflection splays across the sky like some stars. My fingers move across them like a solar darkness. I am famished. I used up all of my body getting to the airport. I have this entire row of seats to myself, but I'm claiming one. And in it, my body sits tight and small like one good line. A plane is amazing with all its adjustable knobs to give us the feeling of control and all the really dangerous parts left unmoved. For example, I could turn a reading light on or put my magazine away into the secure hug of the pocket in front of me or move my seat back and fold my body on it to sleep. But right outside, one pressure shut lever, that wild wind. Earlier, I left behind a warm apartment and a man whom I love and for whom I feel gratitude, for whom on mornings in bed I feel a breaking tenderness. He was cooking dinner for himself when I left and making a little extra. He's practical that way. Do you have the time to stay and eat, he asked. And when I said no, he said, do you have the money for a cab? You should never be afraid to ask me. And I thought, I have this. As I locked the door behind me, my throat feeling like the little waist between the segments of a wasp's body. At home in bed, I have messy dreams that wake me, and I look at my body shining in the floodlight from the car lot next door. Sometimes the lonely, heart, lonely part of my heart pings, and I get super afraid and turn. I thread my arm around the body with its back to me, and I put my hand on the heart. This is not supposed to sound heavy-handed, but I get that it does. But I just need proof, you know, something that lets me press my chest on it and feel okay. The light weirds the room when it looks in like that. My body is the thing that belongs to me the least. Inside the plane, the lights go dim. I can't stop thinking of how I'm hurtling through the sky. My computer is running on reserve power. I am too. There is no place to plug into. 
there's nothing in the night but air, cold, high air, negative air in unfathomable temperatures. I am cold and feel lonely and like I want something. At my seat, I have a cup of water and a stack of napkins. The light from my window is safe and tiny and brightens pretty much nothing outside. My body is a closet. My body is smaller than a closet. My body is folded into an airplane's overhead bin. My body is so close to dying. Everyone sleeps around me. I never sleep on planes because I don't feel right, but it's sort of comfortable now and I can get close. I let my hands rest and as they do, the keyboard light goes out. The reflection in the window stops moving and this stops the battery from draining entirely. It's okay to have no heart. Deep under the muscle is one cold place, a diuretic place where the water rushes opposite gravity. Like, you know what it is about something leaving you, really leaving you? The moment when you've breathed in all the air you can breathe and you take in one more sip and something breaks a little in your sternum, there you are breathing a little less easy, inhaling a little more shaky, uneasily watching Illuminati videos on YouTube, getting real weird and down. For you, my audience, if you are still with me, I want to tell you what it will be like when it leaves. There's a sense of discovery, but it's not sentimental. You'll find something hidden, but most of you will die. It's a fun book, really full of fun. <laughs> There's a large section in here about money and owing it and owing amounts of money and how much it starts to dictate the decisions that your life, uh, that your life takes or the directions that your life takes. I won't read that, but it's in here. Smartphone. Some days you can't do anything not even your own makeup. Some days you already blew it. One wonkily painted eye watching the liner tutorial like an unwrapped egg. Leave the house, then sulk around doing that weird wandering walk that people do when they're looking at a smartphone. One zombie foot clubbing in front of the next and your visual anchor gone. Smartphone. Beloved Vista, the only real doing is swiping. It's not possible to stay away any longer. The song tightens around you as it tightens around me all the time. Pure self-definition, fresco of things I can't forget to do. We live in um, electron air. We live in um, an election year. Self-love is important. In the night, I sit with a cup of old wine tearing me up. It's terrible to admit I haven't left the house today or gotten dressed. I don't know what yellow the moon is or the tail of clouds around it or what is a moon. Forgetting is easy. Just never go out. Really soon, the sun, too, will become an elaborate metaphor. Yes, when we're dead, we come apart a little at a time. Today, my exposure to wilderness is a zooming house fly and the smell of my own sweat. Hey, creature, I am too poor to kill. The death of a body means nothing unless it's your own. And basically, the deal is, until I get to the end of this poem, or any poem, and or until I have no more body parts to give, we can both live. Self-love is looking at yourself like a foreign bug and still loving. I hate my long dead body, I think, every morning and night, shuddering wine or black coffee down my neck, pulling it down with gravity, 
with the grace of gravity, I feel less and fear paroxysm bless the nerves down to the feet that fold from my body like seraphs. I am going to love something to the ground for once. I'm going to read um, some other poems too, not from the book. Um, this is funny because I usually read from my phone, but I was like, well, I'm going to read here, so I better print. <laughs> it's true, it's a thought I had. My dark materials. It's so real. I never did it like this before. When I first approached my machine, I was fooled, said my critic. My dark materials opened like a field before me until I wanted nothing but to produce and reproduce the feeling with the use of my darkened room and my vat. In the darkened room, there is my vat. My materials go into my vat, which goes into my machine. It is a system of containers going into smaller containers, the way that people sometimes do by accident. There are no qualifiers like gentle for what happens in my machine. My machine does not waste time. It gets the money. It is paid. And to meet it, the body's own containers rise and beat with ownership. My materials are like an amped up fight between two young men drunk on vodka Red Bulls. My materials are like two hands staunching a painful but non-lethal gut wound. Follow the blood trail to out front of the cheeseburger place and there rising you will find my materials. And now Washed with added value, they are hardened into a stone that I name my content, and ecstatic then I shall remain for these coming days. Do you guys like the word content? <laughs> Just a New York conversation. What if one day you get sick, like really sick? What do you mean, what if? You're not sick. I know, but I'm unhappy. Pay for half of this brunch. That's half of my money in the world. But it's all you can drink mimosas. Those are nutritious, right? Your loud friend is at the brunch place. I know, but it's nice to hear someone laughing loudly. Fuck, let's do one of those Nordic LARPs where people enact a very sad situation. Everyone is assigned a role. In this scenario, someone's child is sick, or their spouse is kidnapped while on vacation. Everyone gathers and acts their role, and it's very cathartic for all the participants. I feel like throwing up. There's not enough misfortune in your life to justify your level of unhappiness. You seem to just wish to be a low level of unhappy, but not enough to disrupt your life, but enough to send people away. This means you are very privileged. I know that. I know that. This poem is apparently now called, I Looked Into the Refrigerator. It's had like six titles. I apologize. You don't, you don't need to know about that. I looked into, into the refrigerator. Recently, I looked into the refrigerator for a long time. I let the door of it angle out wide like an arm that wants a hug. Taking up space is a big deal. Doing it makes you realer because it makes more spaces for your feelings to be. In a yoga class last week, I let a long voice yogini tell me to breathe. It was a day where I worked from home, so I started to feel undisciplined and went to let a yoga body tell me where to push my oxygen. She sang for me to inhale into my hip sockets, and I did, and the feelings romped in like a bevy of otters. I use my huge feeling body for leverage with people all the time. 
I use it to gain things, to win things from people. I wedge it into spaces and conversations and into rooms reserved for other people. I shouldn't say people since that's not how it works. But when you have alone time, it's good to give your body space to grow. When I looked into the fridge, it leaked its yellow square of light onto my feet. I was in it like a spotlight, hesitating. All the time, I feel like I should be done, but all the time, I just picked at the skin. I come from a long lineage of women who looked into the refrigerator. The difference between men and women in my mind is spatial. With men, I look at New Jersey real estate or talk about winning contests. I don't think about space because I am a 3D model rotating. But with women, I take cues. I follow their lead when they order food. I follow their pace when they drink. And when they leave my company, I image search them as the weather lightens or darkens, wondering what their relationship to taking up space is like. I open a split of sparkling wine left over from somebody's wedding. And when I finish it, the refrigerator hums like a lonely giraffe. There is a fight at the bird feeder outside. The birds are all tiny, but nobody wants to collaborate. It's a very cold day. There is a condition to every relationship, and you have to pick a side. And I can finally say which side I would pick. I did put these in order. How delightful. Okay, here's a couple poems about girls. Girls in wartime. Girls are good at adapting, especially girls in wartime. Girls in wartime stopped dancing before you noticed and pussy-footed out the back and into the night, the long night where morning doves, sitting in their conifers, cry out until it's dawn and time to drink. If it's not a good night, it's a long night. And lately, you know, girls in wartime are putting on their zombie makeup. They know that to stay incognita, stay safe and uneaten, you have to join the horde. Key supplies in the kit of girls in wartime are Ben Nye Ghoul Gray and rotting meat to keep the blood smell hidden like a flask of Goldschlager. It's a difficult time in history, but it's always a difficult time since men started writing things down. Since the beginning of history, they have made sure nothing has changed. Believe me, girls want nothing more than to keep their apartments warm and their nails a shiny, unweaponized oval. But this is wartime, you know? And even if we look like it, None of us are out here for fun. Usually I shout this next poem a little more, but I don't think that's gonna happen. <laughs> Let it all out. These are the things I can't do without. <laughs> Did you used to be a muse? Did you used to be a muse like I used to be? I used to hold myself up on a bus like a loose-ankled sock at the end of a film about a cinematically long walk that I invited people to see. In the bright mornings, returning and folding my body back into its home closet, a windowless, empty joy. When I was amused, it was not my walk of shame. It was my walk, and I simply walked it. It was not embarrassing. The casual observer couldn't see it through my teeth because I clenched their enamel hard since, as a muse, I was vain. Between Advil and brunch lies the honest truth. Between love and money, we find a theory of a breath mint liquid. When I staggered here, it was to remind everyone that the passage of time is indeed an act of magic. Its goodness is indecipherable like a box of wine. Open the nozzle and watch it pour out dark and good and fill your cup to the top and fill it again, more voluminous than you expected. When I was a beautiful muse, I did not require a resume or even identification. 
just a philosophy of obvious willingness, a heart that curled around lovers like a well-placed apostrophe, a room of my own I would rather not be in, and a two-handed approach to opportunity. And then, so as Judah pointed out in my introduction, I tend to write a lot about bodies. So here's just two poems about bodies. Alive bodies, not like corpse bodies. Nope, actually there are corpses in here too. <laughs> okay, uh, this is one short. I use my body. The last time I called you, it was memorable. I asked you to search for money with me to help me find good examples of money in myself that don't involve me using my body as a barrier or a passageway. You said, look, I don't play that way. The echo was weird in the parking garage. My brain was an underutilized muscle puffed grotesquely under my hair, so flexed. Sometimes I use my body and it isn't even trying. And I gave myself a stab wound to the dermis and this week it knits together like magic or a Christmas vest for a dog, which I would give away if I knew someone. Are you a hand-sculpted animal? I've been training. I told my friend that I wanted to be strong as we walked a long and cumbersome route to her reading. I meant that I wanted to be so hard that it makes me feel like a captain. I was wearing a shirt that says, this body will be a corpse. Eileen Miles also owns a shirt like it. I like imagining myself with power. Pain from muscle effort is a memory of a desire for power. Training means a part of me is always in pain. Women's bodies are often bombed with pain and women become flyover states of pain because this pain is regarded as unimportant, so okay, I'll do it myself. I horseshoe around the park, throw my body onto the treadmill, move various weights with enormous effort until my shirts are wet at the armholes and sweat beads lattice my upper lip like a mustache. After, I feel horsey and satisfied as pain runs its large hands up the muscles of my legs. It's pretty pure. To me, the purest art is when you commit, enough to admit you committed. Commitment to me is that I'm telling you about it now. Anyway, the first part of every run is always just to get past the shadow of the umbrella of exhaustion that my own shadow holds over me. Thanks. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.